Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today I am delighted and rooted to be welcoming Asia Suler to the podcast. Asia is a writer, teacher, earth intuitive, and ecological philosopher who lives in the folds of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She is the founder of One Willow Apothecaries, an Appalachian-grown company that offers handcrafted herbal medicines and educational experiences in herbalism, animism, ancestral healing, and earth-centered personal growth. Asia has guided over 20,000 students in over 70 countries through her immersive online programs with her writings and teachings. Asia helps people embrace their own unique medicine through a joyful engagement with the natural world. Mirrors and Earth is her first book. Asia, welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kilkenny. Well, it's lovely to have you, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear what you have to share. They're going to love it. I'd love to ask the question I ask all my guests, which is, what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Mm, It's such a rich question. So for me to be a mystic is to embrace being in love with the mystery, to really devote oneself to being in relationship to the beloved qualities of mystery itself. So to be a modern mystic is to allow this modern age to be that invitation to the mystery, to see that modernity is not a block to being a mystic or to embracing the mystery, but that it's actually just the next level of mystery to encounter and fall in love with. Mm, Such a gorgeous answer and eloquent too. And I love it so much because I feel like, you know, we live in this modern day information age where we can get all the answers we feel like sometimes, or perhaps there's a, you know, unconscious even pressure, like we should know all the answers. And so that's so wise and important to remind ourselves to move towards the mystery, not always the answers, <laughs> but to, to the place of the mystos in, in our mystery, the place of the unknowing where there's so much richness. Love that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there is for sure still many, many mysteries here. <laughs> Even with Google, there is still a deep wealth of mysteries in the world. Well, and it's so funny. I think I shared with the audience before, you know, I used to own a very popular yoga mindfulness studio in in Center City, Philadelphia. And I had like a meme or something that I used to advertise with was something about like, you know, because Google doesn't have all the answers, meditate. (laughs) Yeah. So I love that. I just wanted to jump off the conversational high dive, if you will, with you, because I can just tell by your writing, you are going to be willing and able to do this. As the writer Anais Nin, speaking of writers, being an author yourself, I love how she says, I must be a mermaid. I have no fear of depths and a great fear of shallow living. And so I just sense you're of the same cloth and the sentiment. So let's just go right into the idea of the worldview of animism, which you talk about in your bio. This perspective, just to catch the listeners up if you haven't had that word before, that all creatures, plants, trees, flowers, rocks, rivers, you can even say weather systems, if you will, depending upon your experience and beliefs, but that they all possess a distinct aliveness and spiritual essence, which is often referred to as this word, animism. Is this viewpoint something that you developed in adulthood or when you were younger? And would you be willing to speak about your vision of this, your experience of this via nature and the power of being in communion with living with this vision? Yeah. So I think all children are natural animists. I think as human beings, we are innately oriented in that way. And being a new mother, I'm already starting to see this with my own daughter. You know, when children are born and they begin to grow up, they don't doubt that they live 
among a community of individuals with personhood. So until we tell them otherwise, children don't see plants as any different than they would a human. They see them as a person, as a being, or a stone, or a spoon, or a stuffed animal. So it's really only through enculturation that we begin to lose this natural ability to just see that we are one living being in a collection of living beings that make up a very living world. So to answer your question, I think I absolutely began as an animist because I think we all do. And, you know, I grew up in a very intellectual Northeastern family and community. I grew up outside Philadelphia, so I'm very familiar with the area. Oh my goodness. I didn't know we shared that thread. (laughs) Beautiful. Yes. Yep. So from my experience of the Northeast and this this country, there's there's often sort of a, a big lean into rationalism, intellectualism, sarcasm, and sometimes a big lean away from what I see to be more of, of the mystic aspects of life. And so from a very young age, I really wanted to prove that I was intelligent. I was smart, that I was with it. And to me, the messaging I got was that being a, a mystic and believing in something, for example, like the soul of trees would be silly or would be seen as unintellectual. So I really distanced myself from what felt like a really innate way of looking at the world and being with the world. And yet it was always a part of who I was and it was always calling to me. And I think that's true for all of us. If you are in touch with that inner voice, then that calling to really reconnect with nature and with the sentience that lives all of, all around us never stops. And it's something that I, I remind myself of, especially when things are hard, is just the idea that the messages we most need and the healing we most need will never stop trying to be delivered. And sometimes that can look like hardship. That can look like a crisis or illness. But beneath that, it's always the message. It's always the healing that's trying to be delivered. So the way that looked for me was in my late teens, I developed a chronic pain condition called vulvodynia, which is a pain condition of the vulva. And I was told at the time that there was no recourse basically for healing, that the only thing I could do was to get surgery to remove nerve endings from that area of my body. And the way I dealt with the pain was I started going out into the natural world and I started walking in the forest and sitting by the creek. And it was really the only place in my life where I felt seen at that time. I was in college and was having a really different experience than a lot of other folks at that age and in that environment, dealing with chronic pain, which just by the nature of how chronic pain operates. It's a very invisible thing. So I felt very unseen often. And I felt sort of like I was operating in a, in a different world, having to manage chronic pain all the time. So I dealt with it by going outside and beginning to develop this relationship with the natural world. And what I found was that it wasn't just me walking into the natural world and projecting you know, my thoughts and feelings onto the world, that there was a reciprocal relationship that I was starting to receive messages, tidings, and welcomings from the natural world. And it kind of blew me away to just recognize that, for example, this oak tree that I visited every day was greeting me in return when I would come with the wholeness of my heart and also all of my aches and my worries and my sorrow that I would be met in that capacity. And so it really started to open up this whole I would call it a new old world for me because it was very new and yet also very old. It was felt so innate to my being. And at at the time, I was also on track to graduate with a a Native American studies minor. And and so my advisor at the time was Molly McGlennon, an Anishinaabe writer and intellectual. And she really opened my eyes to a lot of thought systems and philosophical frameworks that exist among the multitude of different indigenous peoples here in this country in Turtle Island. And so that opening to really what are very deep and ancient philosophical traditions, along with this primary and personal exposure to the natural world calling me back home was really what for me, sort of reanimated my opening to being an animist. Mm, 
What a fascinating story. And first, I really thank you and honor you for your vulnerability and sharing the challenge that you faced. That is such a beautiful and inspiring tale of then simultaneously igniting your journey into your own spiritual and naturalistic relationship with the world and nature and and passion for that. And a couple of things that stood out to me. One, I loved when you said the messages, I don't know how you put it exactly, but something like the messages we most need to hear, right, won't ever stop being delivered. And that's just so profound to me. And I'd love just to highlight that for the listeners because I feel like that is so true. Even the persistent ones of illness or trauma in you know certain specific areas of our life or challenges you know that's how our soul grows even when it's it's hard and I love how you really leaned into that and found a way for yourself through that through communing with nature and I think it's remarkable your journey which I hadn't heard before in that it sounds like nature really was your first teacher like your first guru it sounds like the way in was really first through nature And, you know, a lot of my guests will like have a human teacher or some kind of, you know, angelic experience or more, you know, something that's more recognizable in a certain specific aberration or form. But does that feel true to you that literally through the the trees and the the outer world? Yeah, it was absolutely kind of what I would maybe consider the, the archangel of the earth herself or itself. Well, I love that because I feel like so many listeners might have this experience because you know I talk to some of my listeners for sure who are clients and students of mine and they'll get frustrated because they're like well I don't see you know angels or unicorns or I don't have an official you know guru from India or fill in the blank but we don't need that at all we have nature and everyone has access to some form of nature so it's so inspiring your story and I also love how you just spoke about that tension which I feel like was definitely an element in my childhood and, you know, where we live in this world, time, space, reality, and, you know, in many circles of intellectualism versus spiritualism and how they really can co-mingle, coexist, and really be two sides of a coin if we can reconcile and move towards them as such, not seeing them as antagonists and enemies. And people can hear it in your words, you know, your smartness, but I love... um, the blending of those those arenas because it's through our intellectualism we can understand so many mystical spiritual things and vice versa if we can develop both. So it's really sweet. And another thing I loved and I would love to hear more of your words on is the idea that this worldview isn't really something that you have to believe in fully. Like listeners hearing your story, you know, can be incredulous or have feelings about what you said. But then they can go out into nature and try it themselves. Like no one has to take your word for it or my word for it about our mystical experiences. And that's what you had said so adeptly, how the nature and natural world will interact with you if you take time to develop and engage with that relationship, right? Is that your experience? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are nature. We are a part of nature. And so... It's the same way in which you would talk about your higher self or the term I like to use is your wider self. It's like there is actually no divorcing yourself from that which you're a part of. And so you are a part of nature. You are a part of the earth's dream made manifest in this body and in this lifetime. So, of course, there is always that opportunity to reach out and have a conversation because, you know, one of the things that I say in my book is that nature is the parent mirror that never forsakes us. And, you know, in psychology, there's this concept of mirroring your child, um, especially when they're young. And so you mirror back to them their goodness and, you know, their strengths, as well as helping them to see and recognize their emotional states. And all of these things are incredibly important for the building of self-esteem and essential life skills. And I think for cultures that have been divorced from their natural harmonious connection with the natural world, we're missing this primary connection with the parent mirror that is the earth that has always been there for us to teach us, to hold us, to help us come home. So yeah, you don't need to do anything special in order for nature to start talking to you because I promise you that nature already is. 
Mm, I love that. It's so beautiful. And of course, you know, we are all, depending upon, you know, our ethnicities and our families of origin and our ancestral lines. But I can confidently say like, you know, something like seven, eight, nine generations, if you research this, like we are all of ancestors and descendants of people who that many generations back completely must have had a relationship with the earth and must have been communing with the earth because it was necessary for their survival. And the fact that you're here, you're proof that they survived. And then that's there in proof that they had a deep connection relationship with the earth, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think especially for those of us who are, you know, there's there's a little bit more time um, in between those ancestors and where we are now. I think there's a deep call right now from these ancestors who I like to call the deep ancestors, that they are really speaking to us and really encouraging us to recognize that this is ours to to reclaim and to come home to, and that this is obviously it's it's indigenous to all of us to have this kind of relationship with the earth. Totally. It's in our cellular memory. And yeah, I love how you talked about the deep ancestors. I have an episode on ancestral healing and talk about deep time and all these things. So folks who are listening can go back and listen to that. But like you had said in your own narrative of your life, how it was so natural once you did, right? You said like there was some kind of recognition and ease about that relationship, even though it seemed new to you in this lifetime. Is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that it is it is absolutely a blood memory <laughs> for <laughs> all of us calling us home. And I think, you know, once we can sort of get over some of the cultural roadblocks that have been erected in our path, then it's really as easy as breathing. Well, would you mind sharing, say, two to three tips of either inquiries or simple practices that you recommend to your students to implement sure. into one's life to help increase one's experience of the aliveness of so many more things in this world in addition to human beings themselves? <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things that I often encourage my students to do is to find a gatekeeper in the environment around them. So a gatekeeper, it could be anyone. It could be a tree. It could be a stone. It could be a waterway it could be a particular spot that just has a certain kind of energy, but you'll know that it's a gatekeeper because you're going to get a sort of a feeling like you're sitting with a grandpa or a grandma, like an elder. And often what I find in a given landscape is that there is one being in that landscape that sort of serves as the gatekeeper to the rest of that landscape. They are in a caretaking capacity energetically for the rest of the beings there and are kind of a sentinel who's sort of guarding that landscape and, and protecting it. And so find this gatekeeper and don't overthink it. The thing is, this is not like a, it's not a yes or no black and white right or wrong answer. Just whoever you're drawn to that feels like they're holding powerful energy in that landscape and go to that gatekeeper, whether it be a stone or a tree, et cetera, and introduce yourself. So this sounds very simple, but it's honestly the the basic building blocks for building a relationship. You know, when we want to build a relationship with another human being, that's one of the first things we do, right? Is we say our name, possibly where we're from, you know, what what we care about in this world. And so not only is this just good etiquette, right, to introduce yourself <laughs> to another being, but it also does something really interesting in our brain. So it starts to actually rewire our brain to recognize the beings of nature as living sentient beings because we are trained, right, to only introduce ourselves to other human beings, those we consider to be people. So when you get in the practice of introducing yourself to a tree or a stone, you are literally rewiring the synapses in your brain to start to recognize the individual's that exist in nature. So all of these things are happening on many different levels. And I often say to people that when you do this for the first time, that you will probably feel silly. <laughs> and <laughs> that is an important feeling to have. So if you look at children, they love silliness. 
They love engaging in silliness. They love being silly. They love being recognized as being silly. And why they love silliness is because what silliness is at its core, it's looking around and seeing the way things are normally done or what's the protocol, right? What's culturally accepted and then turning it on its head. It's like when a child might take a boot and put it on their head and think that they're hilarious, right? Because they know (laughs) that they're purposefully turning a cultural norm on its head. And so when you feel silly, when you start doing these practices of, you know, sitting with a tree, introducing yourself out loud, you might feel silly. And to know that when you feel that silliness, that it's a good thing, because what you're doing is you're flipping the narrative, you're flipping the script that you were handed, this narrative that the natural world is inanimate, that the natural world isn't conscious, that you know, only human beings have this ability to think and, and reason and be in relationship. And it's just simply not true. So to really embrace that feeling of silliness, if it comes up, and then, you know, the last tip I would give is just to create a consistent practice of going and sitting with this being. So just like any practice, right, the more we do it, the deeper it becomes. And so if we want a deep relationship with another human being, we don't expect that to happen in just one time of sitting with them, right? We we make a practice of reaching out to them, of talking to them, of setting dates. So I really encourage my students to create a sit spot where that being is in nature and visit. I mean, just literally think about it like that, like a visit once a week to go and be with that gatekeeper and to start developing that relationship because all of the healing and the conversations and the incredible almost psychedelic perception shifts that can start happening when you engage with nature really all just arise out of relationship. Mm, it's so fabulous on so many levels. And I just echo fullheartedly the sentiments that I speak about a lot in this podcast about the power of practice and also relationships and saying completely in support of what you said and condoning this idea how the way to establish you know relationships with the sentient aspects of life is that consistency. So I love how you spoke of because you wouldn't like have a friend most of the time that you didn't put in that time, that due diligence, that practice of extending one's kindness and energy to, right? Once in a while, like once or twice in a lifetime, you might meet someone and then you're like instantly friends, but that's really Mm -hmm. rare. And it is the same thing in these spiritual relationships and realms. So I love that. And I love how concrete and practical and step-by-step you delineated those tips, which will just help everyone. So thank you for that. It's fabulous. A couple, I don't know, days ago, maybe it was a week ago now, I saw a post of yours. We had already scheduled this podcast and it was so brilliant. And it talked about the idea of metaphor. And I was cracking up because I was talking to a friend of mine and mentioning, you know, my different interviews coming up. And she's like, well, Kakani, she's going to be perfect for you because you're like a metaphor queen. So I started contemplating this idea, thinking about you in this interview of metaphor and myself as a metaphor queen. So when I was thinking back to my days of, I was a, in college, a, a director and a double major and an English major, like metaphor, right? What's the defini- exact definition of classically metaphor? And for the listeners who might know metaphor kind of casually, but metaphor is really technically a figure of speech that describes an object or even an action it can be that isn't literally true. Like if you say like someone's the black sheep of a family, right? They're not literally a black sheep. So I sat and meditated with this idea, like taking my intellectualism and embodying it in a spiritual way. (laughs) And what came up when I was meditating was the quote, and I love quotes and like to write, of Picasso. And I heard this quote in my mind that says, art washes away from the soul, the dust of everyday life. I hadn't thought about it in so long. And I was like, but wait, I literally feel like that's true. Like I feel like there's a dust on my heart or people's hearts and then it gets washed away. And then I realized that for me, what my best friend said full circle is that most of the time metaphors for me are actually like really true (laughs) and there's no bridge. And so I I am a metaphor queen. And I was looking at your post and thinking she's a metaphor queen too. (laughs) And you were talking about how, you know, everything in life, you know, can be a metaphor, specifically plant lives and 
what can be possible if we understand the healing that a plant can bring to us by understanding on an energetic level the lifespan of a plant and how flowers are communicating to us through their lifespan and how they can show parts of ourselves to ourselves that are asking to bloom, etc. So if you could, I'm sure even more eloquently than I could, because these are your concepts that I transliterated, <laughs> mm-hmm. elaborate as an herbalist the sentiment that I love about how we can take our cues off of nature as metaphors for our own lives, whether you're like me and think that they're exact and you feel like everything is actually happening to you as <laughs> it is, or if you're thinking about it as a bridge to thinking about your life. Mm, yeah, I think metaphoric thinking is an ancestral skill. Mm, and interesting. Yeah, and metaphoric thinking because there's only so much that you can learn when you're thinking very literally. If you sort of consider metaphor as making synapse connections, right? Mm-hmm. The more synapse connections we have, the more like knowledge you can gain. And so that's what a metaphor really is. It's like you're connecting one thing to another thing and therefore you're increasing your knowledge of the thing doubly, two times, right? So I really believe that on 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 an ancestral level, metaphoric thinking was, you know, how we gathered knowledge. It's how traditional people and metaphorical-minded people continue to gather knowledge. It's how we gathered knowledge, stored knowledge, transmitted that knowledge, and how we bridged even beyond the physical world to really understand metaphysical truths or mystical truths. So metaphor is at the heart of that, right? If we can just embrace metaphorical thinking, that is how we get closer to spiritual truths, right? Because none of those things can be expressed literally. It's just not possible, Right. right? We get to the emotional tenor of it. And so... In this way of thinking, everything is a metaphor, right? Like physical existence itself is a metaphor that's referencing a larger non-physical reality. And that helps you make a connection to that reality. And I think the same is true in nature. And in Western herbalism, there's a concept called the doctrine of signatures, which is this concept that how a plant grows, where it grows, the way it looks, the other plant it grows around, basically the whole story of that plant's lifetime and the way it expresses itself and manifests will all tell you about its medicine. So here's an example. If anyone's familiar with the plant mullen, mullen is these big, beautiful, long, fuzzy ears and a taper like candle of yellow flowers and it grows often along roadways. So if if you drive down a highway, you might see it embedded in the rocks next to the highway. And mullein is a plant that's known for its ability to help clear our lungs of pollution. So this Mm. is just like one tiny little example of the way in which basically the metaphoric story of how that plant is growing is communicating to you about the kind of medicine that this plant is bringing to the world and therefore the kind of medicine it might be bringing to you. Now, this might be on a very literal physical level, like mullein is good for clearing gunk from the lungs, or it might be on a more energetic or emotional level. So plants don't just heal us on a physical level. They are broad spectrum, multidimensional healers. And anyone who's ever had a profound relationship with a plant, even if it's just a, a flower that you love, that someone gifted to you or that you saw when you were on a walk somewhere and it just swept you off your feet, then you've had the experience of having this emotional healing sort of come into play for you. And plants, if we just take a moment to stop and look at plants or look at the natural world and put on that poet's cap, that metaphorical way of thinking, we will start to see that there are these messages being delivered that are metaphors that will help us understand the greater journeys that we are on right now, which really just cycles back to that idea of the message you most need will never stop being delivered. And so it's actually quite a beautiful thing to remember that all you actually really have to do is step outside and look around and the the answers and the messages that you most need to hear right now are being communicated to you and yet they're often coming in very creative ways. So the more we can put on that poet's cap and get metaphorical with our thinking, the more we're going to be able to receive. So, so profound. And the reason is, is that because as you said, Asia, nature is you. You're not divorced of nature. So you are receiving 
the messages from nature because nature's connected to you and you really have all that wisdom, which isn't, you know, you could take that as a metaphor or not. I don't because I don't, you know, like I said, <laughs> take things such, I, I take them literally, but it's really true if you're getting really philosophical about it. Just wanted to tie it back to what you said early on because it's really true because I feel like a lot of my students are in urban metropolis. And so when I run workshops and trainings, you know, I thread a lot of these nature-based teachings, and I have a Celtic background, so into my work. And for a lot of folks, it's often like an aha moment, like, wait, I'm connected to nature or like, how is that possible? You know, and we go through and almost have to process this truth. And I'm just wondering, even thinking about these dear ones, for people who are in very urban settings, you know, what are some hacks or tips that you could share to connect with the natural world when there's not a lot of the natural world around them? I really had this grand opening in my own life. I moved from the Hudson Valley to New York City. So I lived in Brooklyn and I commuted to Manhattan every day. And this was really where my biggest opening happened to start connecting with the natural world and with plants. So it's absolutely possible, <laughs> even in a place like Manhattan. And what I have found in more urban settings is that the plants are that much hungrier <laughs> to interact with us. Oh, you know, that's now interesting. I, it's absolutely true. So now I live in, in the woods, right? And there's there's so much nature around. You know, obviously the nature here is like looking forward to communicating with me and they like me being around. But when I was in Brooklyn and Manhattan, I feel like when I would sit down underneath a tree and introduce myself and just, you know, sit with my eyes closed and ground into the roots, it was like being met with like a tidal wave of excitement. Because often, you know, those beings, they don't have people stopping and interacting with them. They may not exist in a woods where they're having all these other interactions with other beings happening all the time. In a, in a city, the primary living species are humans, right? To the natural world, we aren't separate from that. We are nature. And so to them, it's almost like living among a forest that's not speaking to them. You know, like we as human beings are the forest and we're not speaking to them and that's lonely. And so just stopping and interacting with a plant in an urban landscape is just it's such a gift for that plant and for you. It's a two-way gift. So I would say, you know, find your local park, sit underneath the tree, spend time in a sit spot there, grow a plant in a pot on your fire escape. You know, just these simple things actually can go so far in opening up a connection. And it's kind of the, I think it's a little bit like the comparison of being at a buffet versus like, getting one spectacular piece of chocolate cake. Obviously, buffets are great, right? Who doesn't love a buffet? But you can kind of cease to really appreciate each thing at a buffet versus if, if you sit down and you just get one delicious piece of chocolate cake, it's like you're savoring that and you can get so much out of it. And the same is true for interac interacting with plants in a place where there's not as much plant life like an urban landscape, that there's really an opportunity to savor, to have a profound connection and to really be met with your enthusiasm. Mm, that is such a helpful and vivid and significant tip. And I totally agree with that because I live in a place where there are lots of trees, not like where you are in the mountains, but you know, I have you know, greenery and trees around me. And yet often I find when I come to the city to work, I have a few trees in a park that I go to and I'm like in love with them and having like mm -hmm. mad love affairs with them. And it's such a really, really poignant thing that you said, which I really hadn't thought of in that way, that they are probably equally, you know, if not more excited really to see me and the few people who, who interact and touch them. That's really so helpful. Really, really helpful. Thank you. You're an herbalist. You have your own apothecary online. And I you know, and the listeners will have a sense of the really magical connection and, and path of yours, how you started to come to this line of work. But can you talk a little bit more about, I don't know, what are the greatest benefits of working with herbs in your mind's eye 
not only the benefits that a lo- you know will be obvious to a lot of our listeners that they can be safe alternatives to synthetic drugs at times, but even just in the way of relationship with them and the way that you know you could hear the name like you talked about of a specific flower of a specific herb and start to develop that kind of relationship with them and and really how you work with them on an energetic level as well as physical level the thing that makes working with plants so very special is that they are these multidimensional sentient beings so a lot of pharmaceuticals for example which i'm i'm not disparaging because they have a very important place but a lot of pharmaceuticals are distillations of one compound within a plant. And so what you can miss out on with that is the whole amazing complex of all the ways in which not only the molecules within a plant are interacting, but its consciousness, its sentience, its soul. And so when we take plants as medicine or work with plants as medicine, we aren't just inviting physical healing, we're inviting that emotional and spiritual healing as well. And I often say that plants are our elders, <laughs> they they are those who came before us that made our lives possible. Without plants, humans would not exist on this planet. And so when we interact with plants as medicine, we are connecting back into our ancestry, into this long lineage of healers and really back into our source. I think plants are conduits that help us develop a deep relationship with the soul of this planet and the soul of this earth. And from my perspective, that's why we came here. So, you know, we came here, of course, as souls to learn and to grow and to bring that learning and growth back to the whole. But we also came to be a part of this larger experience of learning and growing and healing, which is the earth's dream, the earth's life. And when we work with plants, we kind of can remember why it is we came here, why it is that we decided to be, you know, human beings on this particular planet. And the plants will help reground us in that specific life path, that mission. And I, and I think that everything that manifests in our life, whether it's a physical illness, mental illness, spiritual illness, all of those things are manifesting so we can remember the why, so we can remember the reason why we came here, why we are earthlings to begin with. And plants will really help you get to the heart of the issue. And I think when we can get to the heart of that remembering, a lot of the need for you know, some of these more major crises can diminish, not to say that you'll never have a crisis again or that you know a chronic illness will simply disappear. But I do think that having this relationship, it makes it so that these these waves of really sort of over-the-top messages often don't need to happen nearly as much because we are in connection and communion with that reason, that why, that invitation to learn. And plants are just such amazing teachers in that realm. Mm, I love how you talked about them as ancestors with a gorgeous framing and yeah, they're just such a support structure that we can lean into and uphold us and use as life rafts, like you said, towards tumultuous times. And it was really, really a beautiful, beautiful answer. When it comes to specific flowers, I mean, I'm not an herbalist at all, but even myself, I've had like pretty incredible experiences where I've meditated on a plant with a group of people or a friend or they've said the name of a plant and I've meditated on the name and then had the experience of in meditation, seeing colors, seeing shape, textures of the plant, like essentially seeing the plant. This is not smoking the plant. This is not anything, you know? So I wanted to really talk about that distinction, how, you know, there are times and spaces and people use plants in all sorts of different ways, but how, you know, plants are these amazing, alive wise beings. And do you work with the plants ever in that way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that you don't have to take a plant internally to interact with its medicine at all. In fact, I think think taking a plant internally is, it's like the gateway, right? To redeveloping that relationship and learning that you can have this relationship without taking it internally. And it's almost like, at one point I likened it to, if you've ever 
like been in an uncomfortable situation and you've thought about one of your beloveds, you know, it could be a spirit guide or maybe just a friend who you adore and you kind of called them in and you felt their energy come in and you're like, okay, I feel better. When I used to feel awkward at a party or something, if, if I was there alone, maybe I'd think about my best friend. And just thinking about my best friend, it's like, oh, I feel better. My heart feels a lot better. Like my whole system relaxes. You can do the same exact thing with plants. So the more you develop that relationship with them, the more, yeah, you can just sort of call them in and have their energy come in and work with you in that way. And I think this is obviously just my guess here, but I think for our ancestors, this was probably a primary way that they worked with plants because let's be serious. It's a lot more energy efficient <laughs> to just call the plant in energetically than it is to find enough of that plant to harvest it, to process it, to carry it with you, to store it, all of those things. So really sort of opening yourself up to that possibility that just reaching out with your heart can be healing, can just really open up this whole spectrum of, of greater healing and possibility for you. Mm, that's such a breath of fresh air for people who like aren't quote unquote plant people or maybe overwhelmed just because of what you said, what it can take to process and extract different aspects of plants and, you know, dry them and store them. And, and then of course, like I love to go to an herbalist like yourself, I've ordered things from you as well, you know, and then get actual information about when the times are, which can be incredibly supportive and helpful too, to ingest them but not absolutely, like you're saying, at all necessary, or even in teas, right? Tea ceremony and tea ritual is such a, a powerful way that we can be present with plants in a way that's healthy and safe. Do you do any work with tea and tea ceremony or just with herbs and tea? Yeah, of course. I mean, tea is, tea is a daily and essential part of my life, and I, mm -hmm. I don't have as much experience with any traditional type tea ceremonies, but mm -hmm. I think you know, anytime you make tea can be a ceremony. So I remember before I went to herbal school, I had no idea you could make loose tea, right? I just, all I knew was tea bags. And it was very magical to realize sort of that you could make tea from a bunch of different types of plants and that you right? could make this loose. Yeah. <laughs> and that you could make this loose, this loose tea in a, in a French press and, you know, that I could go outside and collect things for tea. But it also made me really appreciate just the fact that I grew up drinking chamomile tea that I'm like, well, there, that bit of magic was there for me all along. And that even if, you know, I'm traveling and all I have access to is whatever it is, like a sachet of mint tea, that that can be a ceremony. Totally. Totally. I have like this huge colossal drawer in my kitchen and we call it the tea drawer. Like, and I just have like, when, you know, our guests and family, like I'm famous for it, just like copious amounts. And just what you said, I remember the first time in like, I don't know, early adulthood learning that even had like a little bit of fear because of the way that I was raised, which was so, you know, kind of cut off from plant medicine, just like, like, okay, I'm not going to poison myself, right? Like by taking all these like different, you know, that I knew intellectually were safe, but I had to like, really do that healing and that psychological leap back towards, you know, the earth-based ancestral ways, like, right, they would make tea hundreds of years ago. And this is part of the way. That's mm -hmm. so magical. I love that. Now, I, as I mentioned, have Celtic roots. And I think that we share that from what I've heard of your background and when I've heard you speak. And I would love to talk about the quote-unquote other world here on earth that is just beyond our ordinary perception. At least that's how I was taught. And I know that there are a lot of different traditions and belief systems, and I honor them all. But the way I was taught in the Celtic tradition about the other world was very, very profound for me because it really tied into the idea that the other world was accessible through nature, through being physical, through even our bodies and things that are tangible. And this is also the belief system that I grew up with as a young uh, yoga practitioner, which is really my, my spirituality in childhood. And they really went in tandem well together. So I wanted to please ask you if you could speak about your understanding of the other world, your background and any, any jewels of wisdom you have and you know your own um, Celtic heritage. I love so much that you brought in this bedrock belief from what I understand to be the pan-Celtic tradition, which is that physicality itself is this gateway to interacting with the other world, that it's not divorced from a more spiritual reality. And I think 
from a more Christian, um, not to say that there is also Celtic Christianity, but from from what we think of as a more like Romanized um, Christian perspective, the two were often divorced. And yet this is what I love about the Celtic tradition is that being on earth is a part of the spiritual journey and that the other world is not divorced from our world. It's really just the other the other side of the coin, or in the traditional way of saying it, the other side of the veil. So the two worlds run parallel to one another. They are interwoven with one another. And from my perspective, the other world's actually the larger world that our world is is a part of. So if we think about the other world as the place where the ancestors live, where beings transition when they depart where the unseen energies live like the fairies or the she where possibilities live then that's actually the bulk of our world right it's like most most of the beings that have been on our planet are not in physical existence at this time and there's so many beings that exist in the unseen so we are actually just sort of a smaller physicality is a smaller manifestation of this vast realm. And so the other world is everything else beyond that. And it is accessible really at, at any moment from this world. And I, when I first learned about this, it just made so much sense to me. And it was also just such a beautiful place to ground into as someone of Celtic descent and European descent to realize that yeah, my ancestors had these incredible spiritual and philosophical traditions that I can connect into and I can I can draw upon as a source of strength. And I have found throughout my life, now that I have this sort of definition of the other world, that it's really given me good perspective on my experiences and the things that I've had happen, whether it's walking into a landscape and feeling like there's a thin sense to it, like there's a lot happening that is just beyond my my gaze or my perception, but that I can feel it energetically, the, the churning of it, the vortex of it. I'm sure a lot of people listening have had that experience of going to a place in nature where it's like there is something very potent happening here. Or maybe having a, a dream, a dream where a loved one who's passed on visits you or a prophetic dream. So all of these are part and parcel of this belief system that the other world is right here. And that in reality, this other world sort of as as our other half is always wanting to interact with us that that it's it's wanting to be in relationship with us and so there's always that invitation e- even as we lean fully into the the joy and the opportunity of being here in physical existence hmm. i love that so much that it reminds me of what we were speaking of in urban settings as you're saying like this other world and the energies in the other world, like they're so excited to see us. Like when one of like there are all these beings walking around and then if there's just a minority of the human population that are paying attention to them because it's a minority, it's like it must be like extra exciting for them that we're like, hey, are you there? I sent something, you know? And I think that's that's really, really true. And I know when I went to Ireland and went to the area where my ancestors are from and even met some of the people there who I'd never met in my family lines, they were talking about, you know, the fairies going to the hills. It was, I don't know, like the mailman coming to the door. Like so just matter-of-factly, like, oh, the fairies in the hills, blah, 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 the fae, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's so woven into the fabric of their kind of colloquial day-to-day understanding. I mean, I was like, my mouth was ajar, my mic was dropped when they were just people I met who weren't having these spiritual, metaphysical, existential conversations at all. And then they just started talking about the Fae. I mean, it's so refreshing to be among that kind of continuance of a belief system and just reminds you that these beliefs are not far out, that they are grounded. They are here in our traditions and here in our earth and here in our ancestry. And that it's it's there and and ready for us to access. I feel like it's extra refreshing if you're of European descent and maybe not as aware or in touch with the traditions of your ancestors, say in America or certain places in the West, that you know you just identify, oh, you're white, you know, and there's like a cutting off. Sometimes I feel like and I've talked to friends about this of understanding and the exploration of where some of our family lines come from and their traditions. You know, say if you're Irish that aren't just like drinking in a bar or something like that. Right. Yeah. So so it's really it really can be very, very profound. And um 
Yeah. And I, just as a foray, because I heard you once, it's the first time I heard you speak, talk about your name. So as we start to unwind the conversation, you were talking about language and you're such a fan of language and I'm such a, I'm really, I'm obsessed with language. Would you mind talking about anything you want to say about someone's name? I heard you talk about your own name a little bit, if you want to share a little bit about, bit about that, but like the power of language and the magic of one's name. Diving back into, you know, Celtic roots. I, that's something I love about the Celtic tradition is just the love of language. Oh, it just really speaks to me so much. And I think our names, you know, again, dipping back to this idea of metaphors, our names are powerful. They hold, they hold medicine, they hold wisdom. And I guarantee you, your name holds some gems, gems of wisdom and metaphoric thinking for you about your own life path and perhaps the gifts that you came in with. So most of us were given names. Some of us have chosen names for ourselves. All of those names are important and and bring wisdom. My given name, the name I was born with is Asia Lee Finnegan Suler. And at some point I looked up the etymology of all those words and I was so surprised because it really basically defined what I was doing with my life. So Asia um, is a very ancient Mesopotamian word, and it meant the dawn or the east. Lee is Celtic and the Gaelic word, and it's it's a meadow. Finnegan, also Gaelic, and it means fair one. <laughs> I'm quite pale. And <laughs> Suler uh, is Polish. It was originally Sulerski. And from what I can find of my research, it meant student, scholar, and teacher. So if you put it all together, I am the, the fair student, scholar, teacher of the Meadows of the East, which basically completely describes <laughs> myself, <laughs> my origins, and my life path. So I just was so fascinated by that when I did that etymology research. And so I just encourage people, if only for fun, but in always pursuit of the small nuggets of, of wisdom and, and self-knowledge that it might bring to just see what your name might mean. Well, I love that. I mean, language, right, holds frequency. That's for sure a, a teaching of the Celtic tradition <laughs> and and that lineage. And, and I love what you said, even if you don't like your name. Like I've known people who have done that journey and they're like, I hate it. I hate my name. And yet still when they go down the rabbit hole and that's the blessing of the information age <laughs> and find out the, you know, etymological aspects of their name, you know, I've never met someone that there wasn't some resonance of truth, you know. And when you go to a psychic and even, you know, when you call in people, you know, they they use the name and and the energy comes. You know, our names are very, very much a part of our our physical identity that can call in the, the energetics of ourselves and our destinies, I think. So I love that inspiration for people. I love that inspiration. Yeah, go, go look up your name, people, and, and find out stories that will act as metaphors for you, literally or, or metaphorically. <laughs> well, Asia, I was wondering, as we punctuate our conversation, would you be willing to punctuate our our time together with either a benediction, a couple word blessing, or maybe a one or two minute short meditation with a specific plant you're working with these days, whatever you feel moved in your heart to sort of wrap up with your wisdom gems. Sure. Yeah. I think I feel moved to just share a really brief little meditation. If, if people are interested in that, and if you have the space to do so, you can just sort of drop your awareness down into the center of your being and just notice any sense here of growth or unfurling as if you yourself were a plant reaching out into the sun and then bringing your awareness outwards now you might feel the sense of the living world around you being a source of sunshine, a source of nourishment and potential and love. And as you breathe in, you might find that nourishment streaming all the way into your body, into that center point. And from that center line of your body, exhaling out, and just noticing as you radiate this beautiful light 
and energy back out to the world. This exchange happening naturally. And as it does so, just feeling yourself grow, expand, and begin to really believe in the possibilities of your life, the possibilities of your blooming, knowing that the living world is here to support you in this process of unfurling. Thank you, Kilkenny. Mm. Mm. That was so rich. Thank you so much. Gorgeous. So Asia has generously offered my monthly members the gift of her earth healing archetype quiz. I took it today and it was so much fun. (laughs) So if you are currently a monthly member, enjoy this gift, which will also afford you 15% off any of Asia's courses. And thanks so much for being a monthly member, which allows me to offer this podcast. If you want to support this podcast while supporting yourself, and aren't a monthly mystic member yet, head on over to my website, modernmystic.love, and get my entire yoga, meditation, and mystic hack video library, which is on a gorgeous and user-friendly platform and includes all sorts of phenomenal discounts and free offerings from my guests. This month, I've also started offering astrological chart readings to the public in addition to my private clients. So you can book one of those over there on my website as well, modernmystic.love. So Asia, where can folks find out about your profound work and offerings in this world, including a book coming out soon, right? Yeah, yes. As as we're speaking yeah. right now, the book will be out in two weeks. So it will be wow. out and available this summer for anybody interested. It's called Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World. You can find that book as well as all of my other offerings on my website, which is onewillowapothecaries.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube under my name, which is Asia Suler. Congratulations to Midwife of Book. Incredible. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phil Kenny. This has been such a powerful conversation. Thank you for this incredible space that you're holding in the world. It's really an honor to be here. Well, thank you, Asia. You're really such a wealth of knowledge. And really, I feel like a true voice for the future that we're all building together. That's earth-centric and spiritually based. So thank you so much for being here with us today and really for sharing your unique voice and eloquence with our listeners. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can find information about my very exciting monthly mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible, sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more. I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over 100 alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels, meditation and breathwork classes, so you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention my mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. 
Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic Podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste. Namaste.